0: The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh, or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. In the 1960s, the Detroit-based Ford Motor Company was at a down period. They were hoping to get back into relevance by making a car that would demonstrate their craftsmanship and their power. And at least as is detailed in the movie Forward vs. Ferrari, there's a key moment where Henry Ford Jr., who is now the CEO of the company, goes to see this car that he knows all about. He knows how much it cost, he knows the specifications, but he doesn't yet know it in experience. And so when he shows up at the tarmac where Mr. Shelby is going to introduce him to this car, he is invited for a test drive. When he's brought inside the car, he assumes he knows everything about this car. In fact, he somewhat arrogantly and naively says, my name is on the car. Of course I understand the car. But when they close the door, and it revs up to over 200 miles per hour, (laughs) his experience changes. And as he's being whipped around all over this tarmac, and then they eventually come to a stop, he burst out in tears. He realizes that his knowledge about is very different from knowledge of. Now, in today's passage, Paul has transitioned from an incredible description of God's grace in Christ. That was verse 3 through 14 of chapter 1. But now he says, I want you to not just know about that, but to know of it and to live it. So today's sermon title is Knowing God's grace. You'll want a pew Bible open, or you'll want your Bible open in Ephesians chapter 1. If you're using the pew Bible, it's page 1159. That way we can look carefully at the words that God has breathed out. Paul's sentence in the last section was 202 words long. Today's sentence is 169 words long. Again, just one sentence the second of Paul's eight very long sentences. And here's how I'm going to break down the sermon today to make it as easy to follow as possible. First, we're going to look at who Paul is praying for in verses 15 through 16. Then we'll read what Paul is praying for them. And then finally, in the third section, verses 20 through 23, we'll read how this is possible. Okay? So the first section, who is Paul praying for? Let's see that in verse 15 and 16. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. For whom is Paul praying? He's praying for Christians. It's really important to bear in mind because what he prays is remarkable when you remember he's praying for Christians. We're going to get to what he prays. That's the bulk of the sermon, and it's the bulk of the text. But before we move past it, there's a couple of really helpful insights we get just in how he prays for Christians and what Christians are. Now, the Bible gives many definitions of what a Christian is. But look at this one in verse 15. If you were to ask, what's a quick summary of what a Christian is? Here we have two things that are joined together by the word and. A Christian has faith in the Lord Jesus and a Christian has love toward all the saints. Harold Hohner uh, did his Ph.D. at Cambridge, spent really his entire life working on Ephesians, the ultimate fruit of his labor, was an outstanding exegetical commentary on Ephesians. He he really does know his stuff. And here's what he says about this phrase, all the saints and the way Paul uses it. He writes, used in the plural, Paul uses this phrase to refer to believers who belong to a local church. This love is not love to the world generally, but to the saints particularly. This is love that the world sees that shows the love that Jesus has among his people. So notice here, it's love for all the saints. What you'll notice in Paul, no matter what he says to any of the saints in any of his letters that might be hard or challenging, he is genuinely thankful for them. This is very important for us to remember with our fellow brothers and sisters. We can probably remember things about our brothers or sisters that are irritating or frustrating. But if they are indeed our brothers or sisters, there is always reason to give thanks for them. There's always reason to give thanks for them because of the grace of God that we see, rather than focusing on the growth that is yet to be. Because of the grace we see, there is much reason to give thanks for them. And I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, when you pray through the church directory, to give thanks. For the grace you see in that brother or sister. And if you're wondering, well, I don't know them very well. Well, let's get to know each other. But even if we don't know everything about that person, we're going to see from Paul's words how to pray for people, even if we don't know them intimately. Didn't you notice in verse 15, he said, these are people I heard of your faith. Now, Paul did spend three years in the city of Ephesus, but it's been at least six years since he's been there. And this is probably a letter circulating to Christians all through Asia Minor. So even Christians we don't know intimately, we can be thankful for grace we know about, and we can pray for God to do the work that only God does. So that was the quick part of the first section. The bulk of the sermon is now the second part. He's praying for Christians. What is he praying for Christians for? Now let's pick up in verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Right away, it may pop out to you. Why is he praying Christians will have the spirit? Don't Christians already have the spirit? We saw in verses 10, 11, 12, and 13 of this same chapter that the Holy Spirit seals us. He is our guarantee. He is our ground of inheritance. So how then would he pray that Christians would have the Spirit? But notice he's praying that we will have the Spirit to do something only the Spirit can do and that Christians still need the Spirit to do. The Spirit will give wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now wisdom is something God possesses. In verse 8, we read that when God redeemed people from eternity past, he did so in lavish wisdom, Sophia, the ability to make discerning insight, things that are incredible and breathtaking. This word still means here wisdom of insight, the nature of how things really are. But this now, notice, is something that only the Spirit of God can give. The Spirit of God gives wisdom, and the Spirit of God gives the second word, revelation, You might remember the word mystery from a couple weeks ago. This is the opposite. Revelation unlocks mysteries is the idea. It unveils what was previously hidden. So brothers and sisters, let me say this to you. Now, we need the Holy Spirit to open our hearts to receive truth. And we always will. Last month we had the March Madness Basketball Tournament. And the previous night, I was reading the newest Time magazine that I had at home, and it was about artificial intelligence. It was riveting. I didn't know anything about this stuff. The next morning, I showed up to church, and we were trying to make a bracket to factor in 14 teams at double elimination, and I was struggling with it. And Hunter opened his laptop and said, let's ask ChatGPT, the artificial intelligence. (laughs) So we did. And I was amazed how artificial intelligence could put together this bracket. It was astounding and a little bit alarming that artificial intelligence could make it this way. But then I asked Hunter more about artificial intelligence and whether the questions he likes to ask the the AI system. And it turns out if you ask the AI system anything moral, anything wisdom related, anything about insight, it crashes. Which tells us something not only about the AI, but about the humans who programmed it. Does it not reveal to us that to have true wisdom requires God's spirit? God's spirit must incline us or we will not receive truth as truth. Can I read part of 1 Corinthians 2 to you? I want the spirit of God to convince you through his word. What no eye has seen, this is verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 2, and no ear has heard and no human mind has conceived are things that God has prepared and revealed by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Who knows a person's thoughts except their own internal spirit? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the capital S Spirit of God. What we receive is not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Verse 14, the person without the Holy Spirit does not accept things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are only discerned by the Holy Spirit. Let me unpack three things that indicate how wonderful it is that the Spirit of God works See, the reason we cannot receive truth apart from the Holy Spirit is for two reasons. We are finite and we are fallen. Finite means we have a ceiling of limitations. We have a small purview through which to understand. We have a tiny lens through which to see reality. But fallen means even our tiny lens is clouded with the color of our sin. Not only are we limited, but we are hostile naturally to truth. So let me say this to you this morning. Have you ever had a change of heart from the wrong thing to the right thing? If you have, you need to thank the Holy Spirit. The reason you had the change of heart is because of the grace of God through the Holy Spirit. But look at verse 17 again, and notice that not only does the Spirit give wisdom and revelation, but this wisdom and revelation is for a personal knowledge. See, it says, in the knowledge of Him. Him refers to God the Father. But God the Father, we just read, is known through God the Son in Christ. So we might say the Spirit's work is that we would know God through His Son, Therefore, the Spirit's work is for the purpose of personal communion, not accumulated knowledge. Richard Foster is helpful when he writes, When we pray, we approach God because God is inviting us through his Spirit to come home, to return to where we belong, for which we were created. God's arms are stretched out wide to receive us. His heart is enlarged to take us in. Foster continues, of all the spiritual disciplines, prayer is the most central because it ushers us into perpetual communion with the Father. Brother and sister, I want to challenge you with this thought. The Bible uses the word lost to describe our state apart from Christ. But even after we've come to be in Christ, we can easily get lost in our work, in our worry, in our wounds in our needs, be found by the knowledge of him. Isn't it wonderful, too, that human philosophy essentially teaches us to know ourself, but the spirit of God teaches us to know God. So here in Ephesians, we pray that God will do what only God can do, that he will open us to know him. Let's continue in verse 18. I want you to see more of how powerful the Spirit's work is. So now verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. Eyes of your heart enlightened is such a poetic way to communicate that we need at the level of the depth of our soul a softness to know the Lord through his word. Again, you might be saying, why do Christians still need this? And the answer is because Christians still have the flesh. Christians still have a sin nature that causes us to struggle to resist the truth. Paul will say this in chapter 4, verse 30. Quench not the Spirit. Don't work against the Spirit. Be humble to receive the work of the Spirit. Picture a sailboat without wind. So also our lives without the wind of the Holy Spirit are misguided, easily off course, and we overexert ourselves to make very little advance. The Holy Spirit... Intends for us to know the Lord. And the Holy Spirit must soften us, otherwise our interaction with biblical truth will be merely cerebral. Now think of this this way, and perhaps you've heard it illustrated before. Imagine an apple, and you ask two different people to describe it. If you ask someone to describe an apple, they could describe it simply at a level of analysis. They could say what color it is how its texture is, what it even tastes like. They could use their empirical senses to tell you analytically and scientifically what an apple is like. But you could ask somebody else what an apple is like, and they could say, man, I remember the best afternoons with my grandmother where we would cut it up and we would bake a hot apple pie and we would have a wonderful time together. Notice the difference in knowledge. Is not that the analytical knowledge is wrong, but, but that it's incomplete It's not able to share knowledge of with and of knowledge of relationship. I want to ask you this morning, what is your interaction with scripture like? Is it merely cerebral? Is that the level of analysis? You can explain the details and the science. None of that's wrong. It may be correct. But is it under that to know the Lord who wrote it? Isn't that what we read in verse 17? Knowledge of Him. We don't interact to learn facts. We interact to commune with a person. This requires the Holy Spirit to work. Friend, it is all too easy, and I say this with much seminary training, it is all too easy to approach Scripture at an intellectual level and, in fact, to wield it, to demonstrate your grasp of it rather than to be humbled by the author of it. We need Scripture to move us to our knees, not to pull our shoulders back. Here the Holy Spirit does what we need Him to do, to show us our need for God Himself. And friend, frankly, haven't you observed this? Haven't you seen two people who grew up in a similar house and many decades later, if you gave them a Bible trivia quiz, one can answer all the right questions, but the other person knows the Lord. Haven't you seen people in the same church for years singing singing the same songs, listening to the same sermons? And they both have a very terrible life circumstance. And for the one, they just keep on moving. Their feet are on the solid rock. For the other, they ebb and flow with the tide. The difference is knowledge of versus knowledge of the one who wrote it. You know what else is interesting to me is that Paul prays that God may do this. Doesn't that show an ongoing dependence? God, would you please do this? Because I still need you, and I still need you to do this work. God, please do what I cannot do. Lord, I pray that you may do this. But now the center of his prayer. Now, after giving us the posture, now the center are the three things he prays that God would have us to know. I'll tell you them up front. Hope, inheritance, and power. Hope, Inheritance and power. Let's continue in verse 18. We'll see the first one, hope. I pray that he may help you know, here's the first one, what is the hope to which he has called you. Notice this is not my calling or your calling. It is his calling and that's why the hope is a guarantee. It is not a wish. It is a certainty because of the person who made the call. The person who made the call is God. As a child, I used to watch superhero cartoons. Let me correct myself. I still occasionally watch superhero cartoons. But as a child, I really enjoyed them. And they often on Saturday morning would end with a cliffhanger. And they would say, tune in next week to see if the superhero survived this great calamity. But then if you stuck around after the commercial... They would show the superhero in the clip for next week, and he was fine. And even as a child, I realized, okay, I think he's going to be all right. And this passage is showing us of what is guaranteed because of the person who called. Christian, our hope is not waverable. It is imperishable. I want to ask you, do you know hope like that at the heart level? Do you have hope that can face anything? Do you know what you claim to know? Do you know him who calls? Hope is beautiful, but inheritance is even more breathtaking. Let's continue. That you will know not only the hope, but you will know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, if you've been here the last two weeks, you know that this word inheritance has been used many times. In verse 11 and verse 14. In verse 14, we read Christians have an inheritance. We look forward to what we're going to receive. But that's not what it's saying here. This is not the Christian's inheritance. Whose inheritance is it? Look carefully at the text. It is his inheritance. God's inheritance. What is God inheriting? His people. Do you know he loves you like that? We talk about looking forward to what is laid up for us. Did you know that God also looks forward to bringing us home? I'll quote Hohner again. The inheritance was previously used of believers, but here the possessive pronoun ought to shows it is God's inheritance. God's inheritance is located in his saints. Because of his choosing, his redeeming, his adopting, and his sealing, we are his possession. Believers are valuable to God because God purchased them and views them in Christ. If you say, man, I'm not worthy to be God's inheritance. Precisely, but we are in Christ. Christ, he knows us and loves us like that. Christian, not only are you looking forward to your eternal reward, God is looking forward to calling you home. I remember the year that Stephanie and I were engaged and then we were prayerful about what we were going to do next and we decided ultimately that I would move to Detroit where I was going to go to seminary and that she would then follow after we were married and so I remember very well the moment we were at the airport we were engaged, we were so excited to get married but now we were going to say goodbye for about five or six months and not see each other again until the wedding. When she got on the plane and took off I did not have the most macho moment of my life. (laughs) There was a lot of crying. And I remember getting back to that apartment that we just bought and painting it and anticipating she's going to come home. We're going to live here together. We're going to be reunited. Christian, God loves us like that. He looks forward to bringing his bride home and Jesus will unite with his bride. We need these reminders because we live in a moment where people are without hope. I came across lyrics to a song this week by the band Vertical Horizon. Here are the lyrics. A small group of boys walk down the street throwing a ball in the air, and one says to another, Hey, I'll always be your brother. I'll always be your friend. The games we played had a happy end, but in the game of life, all the roses wither, and time writes its lines upon your face. It's 3 a.m. and he's feeling lonely. Work's been hard and the city's hard too. He picks up the phone and calls his brother halfway across the country who listens to his blues and says, Sometimes I wish that we were all immortal and the game of life had a happy end, but I know it's not true. Imagine a life like that. No hope of immortality, no hope of reunion, no hope of inheritance. Christian Ephesians 3 is written so that you would know the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of the love of God in Christ that surpasses knowledge. God loves us more than we know from eternity past to eternity future in his son. We have true hope and we have true inheritance, but third, the third word, we have true power. Turn now to verse 19, please. God wants us to know, and only the Holy Spirit can press this so that you truly know it. He wants us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Immeasurable is a great Greek word. It's the Greek word hyperbolon, which means to throw something beyond someone's reach. Some translations have surpass. Immeasurable is a good translation because it's something that cannot be measured. It's beyond our vision. It's beyond our reach. It's beyond our sight. It is infinite in its calculation. So God's power is infinite. It is great. But notice where he avails it. Toward us who believe. Here he has all this immense power waiting for those who believe. Verse 19 continues, according to the working of his great might. Now, Paul actually uses four different Greek words that are all synonyms for power. And here's what they are in the original. The first two words talk about potentiality and the last two words talk about actuality. Here's what that means. Imagine you see a bulldozer and you see its potentiality. But then when that thing fires up, you start to hear its potentiality. But then when it starts just uprooting large trees that have been there hundreds of years, then you experience its actuality. So whether it's a bulldozer or the GT40, to experience it, this car is not meant to be garaged. It is meant to be driven. That's why he says that you may know this power. On Wednesday night, as a church, we looked over Elijah's contest on Mount Carmel. There are all the prophets of Baal and all the prophets of Asherah, 850 of them total, are begging and manipulating their false counterfeit idol to do something. And of course, he does nothing because he's impotent related to power. Where Elijah briefly prays, Lord, show your glory. And everybody sees the Lord's fire lick up the water around the trench because the Lord alone is God. Now you can know about that. But do you know of it? Jonathan Edwards had this concern in the 1700s what he said there's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. So Christian here's my question for you. Have you experienced God's power to overcome your brokenness? To overcome sin? To overcome despair? To overcome timidity, fear to witness, to overcome fear of failure, to overcome apathy that puts you into ministry? Do you know his immeasurable power in actuality? Here's the good news of why this is all possible. Who is he praying for? Christians. What is he praying? That the Holy Spirit would help us truly know God. How is any of this possible? Verses 20 through 23. Look now in verse 20. That same power that God has is the power he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus Christ lived perfectly, but then bore our sins as a substitute. And when he died on the cross and people thought there was despair, God's power rose him from the dead, conquering sin and death. But what the passage continues to say matters. Now Jesus is seated because his work is done. Now he's at the right hand of the throne, showing a position of power and preeminence. But you know what's amazing? Ephesians 1 verse 3 said that's where we're seated too. That means that Jesus shares his victory with all who come to him. Seated in the heavenly places which await when we join him. The verse continues to say more about Jesus' authority. First we saw Christ's resurrection in verse 20, but now Christ's exaltation, verse 21. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You may remember from verse 10 that he's going to unite all things in heaven and on earth. So he hasn't united those things yet. But the age to come is when he will. He is making all things new and he makes the new heavens and the new earth. But his seated position now shows us not only from the resurrection that he lives, but the exaltation shows he reigns and that forever. Now verse 22 and 23 shows how that's a blessing for you and me. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do you remember when in Acts 1 the disciples were so afraid that when Jesus went back to heaven, it's like they would lose him? And Jesus said, You're not going to lose me, I'm sending the Spirit. And I'm going to still work out my kingdom. You're not losing my presence. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Do you know that Christ hasn't left us or forsaken us? He is still reigning, and now his spirit works in his church, his body. Let me consider a couple objections with you. First, you could be thinking, well, wait. If Jesus reigns in this age and the age to come, why does the world seem like it's out of control? But remember, he is in the age to come, going to unite. All things in him hebrews two eight is very helpful. it says in putting everything subjection to Jesus, he left nothing outside of his control, but at the present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. You might further then ask well well why, why not immediately subject everything and the Bible answers this way in Second Peter 3 verse 8 don't overlook this one fact brothers a day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years like the day but the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as you may count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish but should come to repentance why is God waiting to give people time to repent so they don't perish maybe you're here this morning this objection is difficult for you you think well I have a lot of horrible things in my life, and I don't understand why God would wait on those things. But I want to remind you that God, in his mercy, did not send Jesus to immediately right all wrongs, but he first sent Jesus to bear all wrongs on the cross. It is the messed up world that Jesus came into. That is why he can save us, and he can empathize with us. All right, further, you could ask, all right, well, Jesus... His head of all things, we saw in verse 22, his head of all things, he's given to the church. So what does the church do? How should the church live now in Christ's rule? I'll just try to make the answer simple. Some people think that if Christ's rule is happening through the church, then maybe our job as the church is to take over the world. Maybe we should take over positions of political power And we should expand our influence Perhaps even for through coercion Let me disabuse you of that inclination Remember when Jesus was on trial before Pilate He said, my kingdom is not of this world If my kingdom were of this world My disciples would be fighting But they're not fighting Because my kingdom is not of this world Listen, friend Jesus does not need Christians to seize earthly power He is at the seat of all power He doesn't need us to gain any access. But a final objection that's a personal one. I mean, this verse makes incredible statements about the church. Verse 22 says Jesus' rule is given to the church. Verse 23 calls the church his body and says that he's carrying out his fullness in it. And you might have been okay with the world being in a little bit of chaos, but many people have had horrible things and experiences in church. How do we explain that? Is if Jesus is indeed the head? Well, if you've experienced hardship in church, not only do you have my compassion, I can tell you as a pastor, you have my empathy. There are statements that I cannot and should not make as a pastor, but I can tell you that most pastors, if they were given the appropriate opportunity, could tell you many Horrible things that they've experienced In church I'll be honest with you I've worked for secular companies For non-Christian companies And by far The worst treatment I've ever experienced In my house and towards my wife Was not from unbelievers At those workplaces But was from people I go to church with So if that's the kind of real life experience We may find in our time at a church Why would anyone Devote so much of their life to it and love it. And I want to give you two answers from this text. The first reason I still love the church is because it's Jesus' body. And just as the scars on Jesus' hands and his side and his head do not diminish his beauty, but actually make it more beautiful. So also the wounds in the church remind us that Jesus is still beautiful, though he is patiently working out his grace there's a second reason I would show you from this text. Not only do I still love the church because it's Jesus' body, but I still love the church because it's Jesus' fullness. Yes, I've had hard things in church, and so have many of you. But I would also quickly hasten to add this. The best I've ever been loved has been by people I go to church with. And the reason for that is because Jesus is working out his fullness in his church. If you will stay in an imperfect church, but over the years as Jesus works out his fullness, you will be loved in a way you never were in your family growing up. You never were with the kids you graduated college with. You never were with the colleagues you had business success with. You will be loved by the hands of Jesus Christ, who works out his fullness in his body. And when you experience that love, make no mistake, that is the fullness of Jesus Christ That is the power of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, may the Holy Spirit move us from a knowledge of learning to a knowledge of living. From knowledge about to knowledge of. Knowledge of our hope. Knowledge of our inheritance. Knowledge of our power. Our hope is secured in eternity past. Our inheritance secured in eternity future. God's power available in the present. May we know Jesus, who's risen from the dead, raised at the right hand of God, subjected under his feet are all things, head of the church, working out his fullness. Friend, do you know what you know? When my oldest son was born, we had one of these great things where all these people from our family came to visit those first couple weeks, which was a great thing. But I remember, I think it was two to three weeks when I first held him. (laughs) which I was very excited to do. And I remember where we were, we were at a park, there was a hill and I was walking up and down the hill holding him and I was trying to pray for what would be the right thing for him. What ought I to pray? Should I pray that he has gifts? Should I pray that he um, you know, has wonderful opportunities? Should I pray that he's strong? Should I pray that he's healthy? And I was wrestling with what would be the foundational thing to pray for him. And I ultimately prayed John seventeen three for Judah. God, I pray that this boy would know you. And know that that's eternal life, to know Jesus Christ. Friend, do you know him? Not about him. Do you know him? And Christian, let me remind you of what you once knew. A little knowledge of God firsthand is far better than a lot of knowledge about him secondhand. May the Holy Spirit help us to know him. Let's pray together this morning. God, we come to you dependently. We are so sinful that we will push against the knowledge of God in Christ, which is what we most need. So even right now, God, please, right now in this moment, may the Holy Spirit move freely and push against our pride and our arrogance. May we not quench Him, but may we know Christ May we know him in our living, in our experience. May our interaction with the word be powerful because it is interaction with God. May we know a hope that can face anything. May we know that we are God's inheritance. God longs to bring us home. May we know God's power. Even in that area that seems unbeatable, may we experience the power of God. And do those things for your glory, so that your name is known, and so that you are loved. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.